stand ten. Stand the two, they have a total blank. Stand the two. Five and six stand alone and stands at three. Seven stands alone as, as in stands at four. And stands at five is down in verse eight, ending the whole psalm. So we're going to start out looking at the overarching and then we'll break it down for the day. It's interesting. One of the things, a couple things we need to notice when we're going to wait for the text. Number one, you will notice right away that the only part of the song, the psalm from the Hebrew Psalter, number three, is uh, the only part that's not a, a prayer is verse five and six. Notice that. Five and six is not a prayer. But one and two, three and four, seven and eight are all in the form of a prayer. That will become significant later on. You'll notice, if I may just be brief, one through four and seven and eight are dripping with theology, aren't they? You can't miss it. You even just start to bring those verses out. Theology pours out. What's, what's David doing? David is referencing a variety of things in his psalms. And this one is a classic one. Especially the prayer psalms. What is he identifying? He's identifying who God is. His attributes. He's identifying what God has declared. He's praying to God the truth of who he is and the truth of what he's declared. That's what he's doing. You'll find that throughout the Psalms. I would argue you don't find that throughout the Psalms only, but you find that everywhere you find what can be called biblical prayer in the scriptures. What oozes out of the biblical prayers is declarations, acknowledgments, embracings of the truth of what God has revealed about himself, the truth about what God has declared, his plan, his will. In light of the various situations and circumstances people find themselves in. The writers find themselves in. In this case, David finds him in a position of being in hot pursuit. And he's vastly outnumbered at this point. Vastly outnumbered. His life is in dramatic peril. Death could happen at any moment. They are pressing him, even by the soul's perspective, they are pressing him on every side. The implication is what? He's surrounded, there's no means to escape. He is, from all human perspectives, this man is doomed, and the few people, the little band of men he has with him, are doomed. Naturally. In the midst of this, David turns first. That's his, that's his response. As he's fleeing, even though he's probably an error in fleeing, but his, and he's certainly an error in the way he's treating his son. Absolutely. That's a whole other issue, a whole other study. He turns to prayer. Notice his prayer. Starts out in one and two. Oh Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. So his first part of his prayer he cries out to God and acknowledges what's happening, correct? I'm not giving a formula here, but you notice that's the point. I don't think David gave a formula as well, but I think the point that we can pick up here is he's acknowledging the reality of the circumstance. 
This is where I find myself, God. I've got foes everywhere. They are so many, and they're and it's more and more rising up against me, and they've reached the point where they are saying something about me. And what are they saying about me? Well, they're saying something about me, but ultimately they're saying something about God, aren't they? Verse 2, many are saying of my soul, which is another way of saying, many are saying of me in my very essence, and who I am. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. What are they saying, in effect? Okay, they're, they're denying his anointing, right? Number one, they're, they're denying that God has anointed them, correct? Because God has anointed them, and made plans for him, made promises to him, and has he not made promises to him? Yes, he has. I'm also thinking of the David protecting Saul, even though Saul was chasing David. Yeah, complete opposite. Absolutely. David wouldn't touch him because he was was the Lord's anointed. Absolutely. But here, the people who are pressing upon him, being led by Absalom, his son, are declaring there is no salvation for him in God. In other words, what David is saying, God, your enemies are denying what you have declared. So, in a veiled way, in verse 2, he's already beginning to identify what God has declared. What God has stated, what his plan, what his will is. These people are denying the very thing that you have declared. They are pressing on, they're pressing hard, and they're saying, of my soul, there is no salvation for him, David, in God. He's doomed. Notice how he responds. Before we get out to how he responds in his prayer, it is interesting. You get the sense, don't you? That David's life at this point in time is full of anxiety. David's life is full of fear. David's life is full of stress, chaos, potentially, can I throw a few more in? Potentially doubt. Confusion. Can I just stop and step off the table and say, that sounds familiar to us? I'm just asking, does that sound familiar? Not, not, not his perspective, not his level. None of us have been at that level, right? I don't think any of you have been at this level. But you get the point, don't you? David's, if I put it this way, David's situation in life pretty extreme at this point, isn't it? But doesn't it capture in a tiny little way what our lives are like? Do we not experience doubt? Do we not even perhaps struggle with doubt with what the Lord has declared who God is? Confusion? What does the word use, Tom? Chaos? Fear? Danger and all the rest. Is that not the grand summation of life in a fallen world in our fallen bodies and lives and minds we have? Is it? What did Job say? As certainly as I'm sorry, he said, Dan is born to trouble as certainly, as surely as the sparks fly upwards. So he said. He's right. Man is born in trouble. They were born the day we die. Man is born in trouble. David now at this point in his life is in extreme trouble. 
I find this text really insightful for a biblical approach. And David starts off from birth. Acknowledge the situation that he finds himself in. What he does, he acknowledges the opposition. The opposition is not just opposed to David. Now, I would even argue the opposition is not primarily opposed to David. Even though it, it would feel like it, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it feel like the opposition, if you were David, is primarily against you? But it's not. Even David points out in an illusionary way in verse 2 that the opposition is primarily against the one who has spoken. The one who has declared his will, his plan in regard to David. The one who has anointed him. But what David does immediately in verse 3 and 4, he begins to talk in prayer to how God is. But you, O oh God, are a shield of God. You, O oh God, are a shield about me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. I cry aloud to the Lord, he answered me from the holy hills. He immediately turns with that negative word, the negating word, but. And in effect, that first word in verse 3 establishes the contract between all the people in opposition to him. He also not just established, established the opposition, but the superiority over all those opposition. David's declaration that God is superior, but you are sure about it. That you sense David's perspective and his praying, he acknowledges the truth of who God said he is. Really, God, you are a shield. Now, please, let's stop for a second. You, oh God, are a shield. And make sure we don't pick up the wrong point here. Because remember we said last week, we're looking at the Old Testament. The Old Testament is linked to some very important things. In this case, when, when David says, but you, O oh Lord, are a shield about me, what is he referencing? Well, generally speaking, he's referencing again the Old Testament by Deuteronomy. About how God treats people who are faithful to him. And David, generally speaking, he has been faithful. Generally speaking, he fails a number of times, but generally speaking, he's faithful. And he's called for repentance, he repents. But more specifically, God has made declarations to him regarding him specifically as king. God's anointed. God's anointed. He made promises to him. About descendants and everything else. And so David declares the truth that God has made promises to him. God has revealed promises to him, and in light of those promises that God has revealed, he can confidently pray, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me. My glory and the lifter of my head. You are the one who gives me all these things. My glory is what? Interestingly enough, the King David didn't say my glory is my throne. Did he? He didn't say my glory is my position. He didn't say my glory is my crown. 
He didn't say, my glory is my status. He didn't say that. He said, you are a shield. You are my glory. And he takes it all so far as to say, what? You are the lifter of my head, which has several probably connotations to it. Several connotations. Lifter of my head could refer to uh, something as simple as getting up in the morning. I suspect it probably isn't. Okay, well, minor aspect of that. When he says, you are the lifter of my head, probably has, has several aspects to it that are, are more important. One aspect of it would be, you're the one who gives me life. That gives me life for as long as you see fit. You could also have an aspect of, you're the one who put me in the position that I'm in. The lifter of my head. Who is he? He's the king. You're the one who put me in the position to lift me up to this level. You're the lifter of my head. I think there's a number of other possible uh, understandings of the text. The point is, generally speaking, and probably most important, he's acknowledging that David is, or sorry, that God is three things: a shield about me, protecting me from anything contrary to what He's declared. Correct? You are my glory, referring to you are who I, to put it in a way, you are who I glory in, not my safety, security, kingship, my throne, my position. You are my glory. And you are the one who gives me everything that you need for Everything. He goes on in verse 4. I cried to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. Which sets us up going into verse 5. So what do we find in 1 through 4? What we find first of all again is acknowledgement of the situation. But secondly, we find his primary focus up to this point is on what? Who God is and what he's accomplishing. He's referencing God again, what he said about himself and what he has declared to him. So I'm going to pause this before we move on because here's the point. Too often in our praying, what do we do? Rather than acknowledging who God is and what his plan is and his will is, we acknowledge who we either are or want to be and what our plan is. We do a 180 degree shift away from where David is in Psalm chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. David's foundational understanding at this point in time is, God, this is what you said about yourself. This is what you said about your plan. I'm banking on that. I need you. You are my glory. Whatever happens, you are my, to sum up verse 3, all in all. Come what may. Come what may, you are my all in all. You're where I place my trust. I don't place my trust in my hundred men that are following me, that are strong men for war. I'm not placing my strength in my ability to think through this and, and, and find a way of escape and eventually have victory. I, I'm placing my trust in you, and the you is defined by what you declare. That's the you. Not what I think you are, not what I want you to be, but what you said. It's interesting, verse 5 and 6, 
That's the part that doesn't isn't just part of the prayer. It's an interesting, and I would argue, the focal point of the entire psalm. Five and six, it says, I lay down and slept. I awoke again when the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who set themselves against me all around. There's a novel thought. A novel perspective, isn't it? I want you to think about this. It's really important because I think, again, this is the focal point of it. David just prayed about what? Well, he acknowledged the situation. It's a horror. He acknowledges who God is. This is what is really in his heart. Who God is and what he's declared. And if God is who he says he is for David, and if God follows through on what he declares for David, then it makes complete sense if David's trust is, it's basically his tribe, right? You are my what? Verse 3, shield, glory, lifter of my head. It would make most sense that after he finished praying this prayer, that he would what? Be able to lay down and sleep. That's what it says. I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord to save me. It makes most sense that for David, if God is, and he really believes what God has said about himself, and what God has declared about his plan for David, that it makes complete sense for David to what? To lay down and sleep. And the implication is he slept soundly. The implication is when he woke up, he was refreshed from his sleep. I don't know about you, but when I'm in turmoil, too often I find it's almost impossible to sleep. You find that? Our turmoil is nothing compared to this. Correct? Can I submit to you that there's a high likelihood the reason why is because we're folks where? On our circumstances, our problems, what's that? And a trust in our own power, absolutely. And our focus is not on the God who is my shield about me, my glory, and the lift of my head. Instead, if I may work off all three, y'all said, we want to be our own shield, don't we? We want to be our own glory. We want to be the lifter of our head. Something dramatic changes when David, who sees the trouble all around him, clearly he does, looks to God who is, based upon what God has declared about himself and about his plan, Praise God in light of that because he has absolute confidence in God is who he says he is. And if God will fulfill what he has absolutely declared he will fulfill, his response is going to be left as big as what it's going to That's it. Go to sleep. Lay down and slap. Doesn't say he laid down and tried to sleep. It doesn't say he laid down and tossed the turn. It says he laid down and slept. Then he woke again. Why? 
because the Lord sustained him. Why? Because the Lord promised to sustain him. When it says the Lord sustained him, that means, literally, it means he slept and he woke up and he was still alive. That's what it literally means. He woke up and he was still alive. Why? Because the Lord sustained him. How do you sustain him? He's alive. In other words, Absalom and, and, and his cohort did not get close enough to kill him. Goes on in verse six. It says, "I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who set themselves against me." This is not self-talk. Please understand, self-talk is based on care. It has no foundation. You know, back in the seventies and eighties, there was all that "I'm okay, you're okay" thing, where you try to convince yourself you're all right. Based on what? Right? Based on what? Based on nothing. It's kind of like David saying, well, I'm not going to be afraid just because I'm not going to be afraid. Doesn't make any sense. Based on what? He has every reason to be afraid, does he not? He has every reason to be afraid, except for one. Every reason in the world to be afraid. Perfectly legitimate. To be totally wracked with fear. For one reason. God. The God who is. The God who has declared who he is. The God who has declared his glory. The God who, even the night before, demonstrated. They said, What? Yeah, I, I, I see that. I see all those. All those enemy all around. God. The theology is important. Knowing who God is is absolutely essential. If you really think about it, it doesn't make much sense to pray to God when we don't know God. Because if we don't know Him, ultimately we are going to be left praying prayers that we label as to God, but really it's what? I am what? Again? I am my own shield, I am my own glory, I am my own glory. That's what really the meaning of God. But David's focus is on who God is, and therefore he's like, no, I don't be afraid of many thousands of people who set themselves against me. Why? Because many people, thousands, God. Now, does David have any. Possible reason to think the way he's thinking. Does he? I mean, really, does he? What I mean by that is, is there any biblical evidence that, that would give David a good encouragement that this would be an appropriate way to think and respond? Can you think of any? Before David existed? Can you think of any? Help me out. What I'm talking about, again, what I'm talking about is, is there any evidence in the scriptures that God, when he declares, Abraham. he works things out his way? What about Abraham? Promise the son all those years later. Perfect. And not just, not just all those years later. That's a, that's a great one, 
right? Because she's married, because she's so old, and she has a child anyway. Yeah, and then later on, what else do we have with regard to Abraham? Anything else? Providing sacrifice. Providing sacrifice. Very good. Other stories. Can you think of any other ones? Okay, good. That's, that's post-David, but it applies to pre-David as well. Good. What else? Pre-David. The whole Exodus. The whole Exodus. God declared, right? And against all odds, what happened? Yes, it all. Because I've got many thousands opposing you. At the Red Sea. The whole Egyptian army, the most powerful army in the world. God opens up the Red Sea, they cross the dry land, the Egyptian army charges in, the water flows up the ground. Let me change that. God flows the water up the ground. Right? You think of any others? The conquering of Canaan, the end of the 40 year wandering. Impossible. They were not even closer. How about Jericho? Kind of impossible. That they had no way to conquer Jericho. So God does what? Falls all upwards. And before that, he put fear in all their hearts so they would not have spray upset. So they would fight. How about the, the, the standstill of the sun? The made a conquer. How about the hail that killed more people than all their fighting did? How about they fight and fight and fight and fight and right after they finish fighting, they walk at night after a full day of fighting, about 26 miles to a fight again the next morning. The God's escaped them. And we can find many, many of these examples. Then post, post uh, David, we find more, don't we? Not David, because they had by that point have had never seen. But the point is, do you have evidence? Do you have the proof of the scriptures? You think of, how about Daniel? I mean, you know, that's your kids. Daniel and the lion's den. And by the way, I love that one because what did Daniel do? He slept. <laughs> Didn't he? Sound familiar? And he had lions all around him. I love, I remember as a kid seeing a picture of, of, of Daniel in the lion's den, sound asleep, and using one of the lion's bellies as a I remember that as a kid. I love that picture. He's using the lion as a pillow. And then, of course, you got Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Listen, Nebi, if God wants to, he can rescue us. He doesn't. What did they say? That's okay too. Either way, it wasn't their vow. How can they say that? Because they're just arrogant kids? What's that? But I think it's even more positive for him. I think he felt like he would be rescued because that had promised all the promises of his king that had not already been fulfilled. I think his confidence is even higher. Because for Sherry, Meshach, and Abednego, they didn't have all those promises. They had no guarantee they would survive that fire. None. But, but 
at the same time what they say. Well, whether, whether he rescues us, which he's perfectly able to do, or whether he doesn't, we're not going to Why? Because, you know, she had a or basically saying, he is my shield, he is my glory in the lifter of my head. It's a stunning perspective. And there's no evidence in Daniel that there was any in the book of Daniel that they fear him. The topics are so deep and
What is that? What is that statement based upon? Based upon who God is. He's promised. What has he promised? I go, and if I go, what? I go to prepare a place for you, so that basically he says, when I return, I will take you to that place so that you will be with me forever. That's a promise. Correct? The promise. What J.C. Ryle is pointing out here is that promise is true. Because that God who has made the promise is true in all these different ways. And so for J.C. Ryle, he said what? What does fear have to do with that? Your inheritance is coming. What does God say about inheritance? Ephesians chapter 1. That inheritance is there for us. I'm defiled to play. That's the point. That's the point that's going on with David here. I know who God is. I know what God's promised. I know what he's declared. I have nothing to fear. What can they do to me? And then he moves on to verse 7. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. It's really easy to miss it. We don't put it in context and think that, that all he wants is safety and security and health and all the rest of that, right? But no, that's not the point at all. David has received promises. And so in light of that, arise, O God, save me, O my God. And then he talks about God again. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek, and you break the teeth of the wicked. So, what is he doing? Up to this point in time, in verse 7, it's almost as if God said, and David saying, God, in his prayer, up to this point in time, God, you seem kind of like unengaged as far as I can see. You get that sense, don't you? Arise, O God. Could potentially be referring to get up, arise. Almost the idea of are you sleeping? But he knows he's not. But it's more about come to action. That's what he's trying. Come to action. He's kind of been inactive in this thing up to this point. Now, you're like hell. Come to action, O Lord. Save me, O my God. And then he goes on again, connecting with what God has declared, promises. He says, You strike all my enemies on the sheep. That means. You make all my enemies humiliated, or you humiliate all my enemies. No matter what they try against me, your promises, your will, your plan will stand. Arise, God, fulfill your plan. Then you promise, basically, you said. You strike all my enemies on the cheek, because his enemies are opposing what God has planned. And we say, you break the teeth of the wicked. The teeth are symbolic of their anger and their aggressiveness. Take the teeth out, they're not aggressive. Remove the teeth from them, they're not aggressive. His point is, when he calls God to do this, he's saying, basically, this is who you are. Arise, be active, do this, God. In the case of verse 8, salvation belongs to the Lord, and your blessing on your people. In verse 8, he concludes his prayer by saying, What? Salvation, what? Belongs to the Lord. You notice that, that, that declaration is a very intriguing declaration. Because you know what David is declaring there in, in, in the absence of it? 
He's saying the declaration is not or salvation is right, not belong to David was a great man of war. He was a tactician. He was very skillful at war techniques. He was very gifted. He's a very gifted king, too. King and general. At the end of his prayer, he acknowledges salvation once the Lord. If I am saved from this, from these enemies, my only salvation is the Lord. He will be He will be I rest in the Lord. I depend on him. And he closes out in a blessing to the people. And the idea of the conclusion of the blessing to the people is again very much a Deuteronomic statement. Your blessings and your people, not your blessing. It's pride and blessing, the promise of the blessings of God. I'm talking about your blessings as in, as in God, I'd really like to be saved. Somebody can say, I'd really like to be healthy, to be healthy. Bless me this way, bless me that way. But I want his, his blessings, he's talking about the blessings that are promised to God's faithful people. Blessings to your faithful ones. He's excluding the followers of Absalom. Because they're in rebellion against God. He's not calling for blessings. He's not calling for that at all. He's calling for cursing the previous verse, is he not? He's absolutely calling for curses on them. But for those who are faithful to God, he's saying, God, blessings to your people. Based on what? You promised them. Blessings. What kind of blessings? The blessings you promised. Be your favorite. See, from beginning to end, David's prayer is focused purely and simply on who God is and what The result of that. David has extreme confidence. You see, that's what we, I go back to again when we close on this. This is the beauty of biblical praying. We start off by saying biblical praying must have how many objects? If you remember, really essentially, you don't get this, you'll lose the whole point of the whole study. One person got it. Must have two, two people got two objects. There's two objects of faith from biblical praying. You've got to get this. There's only two objects of faith for biblical praying. The first object of faith is what? The God's character, who God has revealed himself to be. That's the object of faith. If I'm praying, I must be praying with regard to who God actually is. I must be focused on who God actually is. Not who I want to be. What he's revealed himself to be. Second object of faith is what? What God has declared in his word with regard to his promises and his will and plan. That's the second object of faith. If I don't have those two, then I cannot pray prayers of faith. If I have the first object in mind, by the way, if I wrap it up as clearly as possible. If I have the first, first object of faith in mind and focus, that means I am praying for God's, not just His will, but also, more importantly, God's glory. 
I'm praying that in the thing I'm praying about is God is magnified in this, that God is glorified in this, that God's name is his, his fame is spread because of this situation. In light of who he is. <coughs> that the truth of who God is will be magnified because of the situation. The second object of faith is in prayer, is what God has declared. His promises, his will, his plan that he's revealed in the scriptures. And I pray according to that. I fold that in as well. And if that's not available, then I'm left with only one thing on the second object of faith. We talked about that before. It comes out of James chapter 4. And that is, if it is your will. And when I pray, please don't miss this. When I pray, if it is your will, what I am praying is, if it's not your will, that's acceptable as well. And if I look at my heart and I say, that's not acceptable, you now know where your primary praying ought to be. You realize that? If I'm, let's say, let's say, um, let's say my wife is dying kids. And I'm praying according to God's will, I bring glory to Him. And I say, if it's your will, Lord, and I start to pray, if it's your will to heal her, that'll be awesome. I ask you to do that. And then I start thinking about it like that. I should find myself back there and say, God, please forgive me for the things that I just brought up all of you. In my human realm, I just brought up all of you. I changed my heart. Did you promise to change your heart? Yes, I did. Change my heart. Obviously, I'm not focused on you the way I ought to, or else I'd be concerned with you want to do that. Please forgive me. Change my heart so that I can, with Paul, be able to say, I've learned the secret of content in all things. Whether I have a lot or nothing, whether I'm in prison or whether I'm free, whether I'm hungry or whether I'm full, I can glorify Christ in all these circumstances. I can do all things in Christ. God, that's not where I'm at. Change my heart's heart's open. And then, if my wife's dying of cancer, is not God at this point using my wife's cancer for the glory by changing me? But well, I have a totally different perspective on prayer. Now, now, in this case, as I just described it, the first object of faith there is the second object of faith there. It's perfect. That's a prayer of deep and abiding confidence. That's a prayer whereby someone can lay down and sleep and wake up the next morning because God sustained them. And rich. I don't know about you. I know me. If I can be vulnerable, I don't find myself off in one place. Because I want what I want. I desire what I desire. I crave what I crave. I want the outcomes that I want. And I corrupt the Lord's Prayer by praying, Our Father, art in heaven, hallowed be my name. 
My kingdom come, my will be done on earth as it ought to be in heaven. Come on, God, let's get together. None of them. And we wonder why prayer seems so hard. We wonder why prayer seems so empty. We wonder why prayer seems so useless. We wonder why we come away from praying when we do pray with nothing. This is not what God is. They become kind of flippant with who God is. They rush off and come with what God is. We're not considering what God is declared. Promises, will, reveal the scriptures, his plan has revealed the scriptures. We're considering our will, our plan. I hope that I hope I hope when we start learning what God did the whole Trinity is. We begin to drink and not with the waters to my drinking. We find ourselves
transform our hearts into love. No. Thank you.